Yud Gimel Cheshvan, Tafshin Ayin Zayin, coming to you live from the headquarters of Ariel Tours in New York. I'm Mayor Weingarten. Welcome to the Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. We opened up with Laner Velev Samim. It's a uh, post Havdalah song, and we're post Havdalah Monday morning here in the Eastern Time Zone. Wherever you are, we welcome you. Welcome into the uh, Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. My name is Mayor Weingarten. We're here each and every Monday, immediately following JM in the AM, which is 9 a.m. Eastern and 4 p.m. Israel time. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to tell you about. The, the fascinating lives of, of two people, Professor Yafa Elyach, Zichornali Vracha, and uh, the great musical genius of, uh, musical and poetic genius of Leonard Cohen, both passed away within the last week, both great in their own area. And we'll share with you a little bit about the uh, update on the whereabouts of Guy Hever, who's been missing in action for the longest time in Israel. 
seemingly just vanished one day. Nobody's taking credit for kidnapping him or anything like that, and it's very strange. So we'll tell you a little bit about what's going on with that. Leonard Cohen, a complex, enigmatic neshama, let's put it that way. And I was very intrigued by him uh, a few years ago. I, I researched his life when I, um, not not like a doctorate, just tried to get information about him. When I first heard the song, Hallelujah, which uh, I actually heard as the background on uh, the West Wing, on an episode of the West Wing, very pivotal moment, and the song just like ripped my heart, and I, I had to find it, and that was the Jeff Buckley it's a famous uh, rendition of Hallelujah. It's one of Leonard Cohen's most famous songs. And it has been covered, meaning it's been recorded by other artists. Some claim that more than any other modern song, he is probably most uh, associated with that song. He died at the age of 82 last week. He was not, for the best of my knowledge, what we would call a practicing Orthodox Jew. But he had, as I said, a very special neshama that kept him connected to his Judaism for all his life. He grew up, he was born to an Orthodox family in Montreal. His family were the founders of the Orthodox synagogue in Montreal, Congregation Sharei HaShemayim, or Sharei Shemayim. And as a child, he davened there. His father passed away at a young age. His grandfather, Rabbi Solomon Klonitsky Klein, who's written Tzfarim, who wrote Tzfarim, who was considered, he had a nickname, Sar HaDikduk, Prince of the Grammarians. He wrote, according to um, Allison Joseph's website, JewInTheCity.com, he wrote a, a thesaurus of Talmudic interpretation, that's his Leonard Cohen's grandfather, and was the principal of Yeshiva in Kovno. And his other grandfather, Rabbi Leon Cohen, uh, helped found the first Zionist organization in Canada, as well as Congregation Char Shemaim, as we mentioned. I saw last night one of the Sfarim, that his grandfather wrote, which he dedicated to his family and his children. He lists them, and he lists Leonard as a child, as one of the people that he's dedicating the Sefer to. He's quoted as saying, amongst other things, when I read the Psalms, the Tehillim, or when they lift up the Torah, Etz chayim hi lamachazikim ba, that kind of thing sent a chill down my back. I wanted to be that one who lifted up the Torah. I wanted to say that. When they told me I was a Kohen, I wanted to wear the white clothes and go into the Holy of Holies and to negotiate with the deepest resources of my soul. That was poetry to me. And I think it's available to everybody. Now, obviously, he doesn't mean to actually go into the Holy of Holies. He's he's talking metaphorically. This is the soul of a poet. He spent many years in depression. It seems that you need to do that also if you want to be a successful poet. says that Cohen would often wear tefillin, and he says, putting tefillin on every morning and going through the Shemona Esrei and really understanding that there were these 18 steps, a ladder, that these were a way of preparing yourself for the day. If you really penetrated each of these paragraphs while starting from a very low place, you could put your chin up over the windowsill and actually see a world that you could affirm. He canceled concerts in 2013 when they were mistakenly scheduled for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. In a New York Times uh, interview, which I remember, he commented that in the past decade, he is an observant Jew who keeps the Sabbath even while on tour. I'm a member of my synagogue. I light the candles Friday night. And about his return to observance, he remarked, I had been interested, but I never really led a formal Orthodox life. I felt the appetite. What is this tefillin I inherited from my grandfather? I had the bag, and I wondered. I began to look into them, to study them, and to try to make sense of them in the deepest way. I saw I really could use this material, how exquisite and skillful these prayers were, how they had been designed by minds that you you have to incline your head towards. These minds who designed these prayers or received the inspiration to design these prayers, these are incredibly subtle and exquisite prayers for lifting the soul. So I began to practice this form of traditional Judaism that was such a happy homecoming. And his Judaism, uh, that that was from uh, JewInTheCity.com. We thank them. And his Judaism is reflected in some of his most popular songs. The most one, most popular one, Hallelujah, is full of biblical references. We will play a cover of it with um, from the Maccabees, which use different words, words of Lachadodi. But if you take a look, anywhere on the internet is like hundreds of covers of that song. 
He wrote a song, Who By Fire, which is obviously connected with Netanatokef, Mi Ba Mai, Mi Ba Eish. And the last album he released, You Want It Darker, which in which he, he says in the words, Hineni, he says to God, like, okay, I'm ready. And um, he's accompanied by the Chazan and the choir of the Shar Shamayim in Montreal. You don't know where to put this man. He doesn't fit in any box. And on some level, he was above the boxes. We'll tell you a little bit about more about him, but first we will play L'Chadodi, which is, or Bowie Kala, which is the Maccabees version of Leonard Cohen's uh, Hallelujah. My name is Mayor Weingarten. You're tuned to The Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. <laughs> Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. L'Chadodi, the Maccabees, that was composed by Leonard Cohen of the song Hallelujah. I found, as I was doing research for the show, uh, I never knew this, and it seems to be such a fascinating little piece of uh, trivia. Gal Galatz, which is the sister station of Galit Zahal, it's uh, music and traffic reports, very uh, popular, high-rated radio station in Israel. Every Motzei Shabbat, every Saturday night, at 2 a.m., they play Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. They play the version of Jeff Buckley, which is really a heartbreaking <laughs> version. It tugs at your heartstrings. And he also passed away at a very young age, Jeff Buckley. And it happens to be also the first version of this song that I ever heard. And that really attracted me to it. 
And this is one of the longest-lasting traditions that Gal Galatz has, that on Saturday night at 2 a.m., they play Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. I've seen various different explanations. Gal Galatz itself, Bar Galat Sahal, says that they don't know where it started. No one can really know for sure how this minhag started, but it goes back for decades and decades. Just at some point, maybe somebody just started playing it, and then the next week somebody else and so forth. They also say that there are soldiers who, who write into them or call into them and tell them how they make every effort to be near a radio or the app, the Galitzal app, at 2 a.m. on Saturday night in order for them to be able to hear the playing of it. it, it it's, it's like it became a ritual. And they write in, in Galgalatz that at a time when anyone can listen to the song, it's like not like back in the day when the only option you had to hear a song was to request it on the radio if you didn't own you know, a record player or whatever. You can, you can listen to a song anytime you want on your phone, and yet people make an effort to tune in and to be part of this tradition on, on Galgalatz. There is... An interesting Masoret, they write, that the source of this practice is a soldier who would call every Saturday night and ask that they play the song. And he did this for weeks and weeks, and then suddenly one week there was no call, next week no call, and so they decided to check, and after checking they found out that this soldier was killed in the terrible um, crash of uh, the Israeli helicopters which killed many dozens of soldiers and so that cemented the Galgalatz Minhag I don't know if that's true they're not sure it is but it's a beautiful story and they surely don't tell it about my songs none of which I composed and one last most inspiring piece about Leonard Cohen and he is famous in Israel for this and I think he'll be remembered in Israel for this when he heard the news about the Yom Kippur war breaking out he was in Greece at the time he got on a plane and came to Israel and he said, I want to volunteer, I want to help, I'll go to a kibbutz. The kibbutzim in those times needed manpower because their manpower were, were at the front, uh, were, were all drafted. So he said, I'll go and volunteer. And he luckily was uh, met in the street, actually, an, an Israeli singer who said, what are you doing here? And he told him and he said, no, 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 I have a better job for you than going to a kibbutz and, and picking um, fruit or whatever. And he said, come come with me to the troops to the front and uh, and sing for them and help raise their morale and he did that and for two months he fearlessly fearlessly traveled from one group of soldiers to another from one place to the next in the Sinai near the Suez Canal and sang to them and raised their spirits Israelis will remember that for, for a long time he when others were afraid when others stayed away he confronted death on some level putting himself in danger, crisscrossing the Sinai during the Yom Kippur War. Uh, we posted on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash The Israel Show, a picture which was recently found, and it is just historic, of Leonard Cohen standing amidst soldiers singing. In the background, you see the tanks and the other armed uh, carriers and with Leonard Cohen standing right next to him playing the guitar is the famous Mati Kaspi. And on the other side of him, in uniform with his hands folded, is General Ariel Sharon. And you see the soldiers around him. Go to the Facebook page. It's worth, it's worth going to the Facebook page just for that picture. It is such an amazing picture. Uh, Facebook.com slash The Israel Show. We also posted on our Facebook page the clip from the end of his performance in Tel Aviv, in Ramadan actually, the last time he performed in Israel, which is in 2009, if I'm not mistaken, he ended his performance after all the songs were done and he said goodbye to the uh, audience. And by the way, he, he fought the BDS movement who tried to convince him not to go. He just was not having any of that. And he recited the Birchat Kohanim. He wasn't reading it. He recited it from his memory, from his... Girsa de Yankuta, from when he was a young child, he wrote, he's written about how as a young child he w- learned the Birchat Kohanim and would go up with his father or grandfather to Duchan. He said the Birchat Kohanim, almost, almost entirely correct. It's been, it was like many years and <laughs> decades since he's done it. And at the end, he puts out his hands the way the Kohanim do when they bless us with their, sp- you know, splitting their fingers. It's, it's a moving moment. There's a, there's a, a man who is internationally famous 
and could have gone anywhere and done anything, but continued to identify himself as a Jew and identify himself with the people of Israel and with the state of Israel. Uh, he died last week. He left in his will that he wants to be, be he wrote and instructed in his will that he wants to be buried in a traditional Orthodox ceremony and buried next to his parents and grandparents in the cemetery of the plots of the synagogue Share uh, Shemayim of Montreal, where he, in fact, was buried in an Orthodox service. Uh, we'll play for you the Birchat Konim from the end of that. A little hard to hear, but you'll hear it. And then a uh, Hebrew version of his song, Like a Bird on a Wire. It's called Kimo Tzipor Alei Tayel. Tayel is barbed wire. Interesting that in Israel they translated wire to barbed wire. My name is Mayor Weingarten. You are tuned to the Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. Tiki Dayan sings the um, the translation is by the um, great Israeli writer Yaakov Shabtai and the composer of course Leonard Cohen like a bird on a wire or bird on a wire my name is Mayor Wanger, and you're tuned to the Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by the incredible organization known as Nefesh Benefesh. Oh, many people were talking about Nefesh Benefesh this week, let me tell you. They were in the headlines. Nefesh Benefesh is an organization that is 100% totally devoted to helping people make Aliyah, helping Jews go back home to Israel. They do so in many different ways. They've literally revolutionized the process of Aliyah from being one where you had to deal with the Israeli bureaucracy and uh, you, you never know what you, where you were going, what you were getting, and so forth. And here, they literally revolutionized it. It's, uh, it's an amazing thing. 
and uh, we are very proud to be sponsored by them. They give they they give needs based financial aid, which is so important to families. They they help you through the government systems. They help you when you're in Israel, once you make Aliyah, and so forth and so on. Take a look at their website. That's all I can say. Take a look at their website. Everything's there. www.nbn.org.il www.nbn.org.il We are proud to be sponsored by Nefesh Benefesh. Here's Shlomo and Ben Artsy, his son. His name is Ben. How appropriate is that? <laughs> With Shir Preda. Coming up, we will tell you about Guy Hever, the uh, renewed efforts to find that Israeli missing in action, and we will share with you about the extraordinary life of Yaffa Eliyahu passed away last week. My name is Mayor Weingarten. You're tuned to the Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. <laughs> Lomo and Ben Artsy, Shir Preda, on the Israel Show, the Nachum Siegel Network. Thanks for tuning us in, making us a part of your week. You can listen to us anytime you want, on demand, using the Nachum Siegel Network app, which is available for free for Android, and as well as for iPhone, obviously. You can listen to us online at NachumSiegel.com. You can listen to us on the telephone, as my, my mother does, by uh, calling the listen line. And if you're not sure of the number, we'll give it to you. Send us an email, mayor, M-E-I-R, 
at NahumSiegel.com. We'll send you the information. So we're happy to have you along, and there's tons of additional material or supplementary, let's say, material on our Facebook page. Links to, to the songs that we play. If you like the song, you heard any of the songs this week, you like them, you say, ooh, I want to hear that, you go to our Facebook page. There are links to every song, to their YouTube videos, unless they do not exist. There's links to, uh, as we mentioned, links to the um, Leonard Cohen, Birchat Cohen in video, if you want to see the video of it. It's very cool. Links to uh, a link to the picture of Leonard Cohen during the uh, 73 Yom Kippur War, where he's entertaining the troops in the middle of the sign. All kinds of great material. If we speak about an article or a subject, we usually will post that as well. So please do keep it busy. The Facebook page, the way Facebook works is, the busier it is, the more it's out there, the more they, they, they push it. So like any post that you see, like the page if you haven't liked it yet. And if you have liked it, get others who have not yet done it to like the page. It's very important. And we thank you all for that as well. Guy Hever is uh, one of Israel's missing in action. His is, one, uh, is, is unusual story. Let's say that. 19 years ago, August, 19 years ago, he just, he, he, he was an artillery soldier uh, in the artillery corps, and he was on the Golan Heights with his uh, division in the base, and he just disappeared. People said they saw him leaving the base, and he, he never showed up. They looked for him and searched for him, and nobody knows what happened to him. 19 years later, at the beginning, the army didn't even think that it was a... They didn't even declare him missing in action until three years later because it's not the type of thing where somebody is kidnapped or falls in battle or anything like that. Nobody claimed responsibility for, for his death. The Syrians didn't say, okay, we captured him, we have him, or anything like that. And it was very, very strange. And on and off, they've been trying to look for it. It seems that recently they've gotten some new intelligence. And, of course, there's new technologies. And so they reopened the search about 10 days ago and... I don't know if this is true, but this is the information that's being put out by the army that they did find some interesting remains. They found some biological evidence. They found parts of a uniform and the soles of a shoe. Soles of, sole of a shoe, I guess. And they sent that all for DNA testing. And we don't know yet what happened. They do say, though, that they have found significant um remnants and they hopefully some of this will point to something to give us an idea of what happened to this young Jewish soldier who just vanished. And we'll keep you updated if we know in the meantime keep him in your prayers as we do all of Israel's missing in action and prisoners of war. Also wanna just quickly remind you about something extraordinary that's happening the end of this week and uh, beginning of next week, the Nachum Siegel Network's Jewish Unity Initiative. Their first stop was in Paris, and you remember the amazing events. The next stop is in Venice, Italy, to participate in the 500-year commemoration of the establishment of the Venetian ghetto, the first Jewish ghetto ever. And um, information about the history of the Jewish community in Venice, the idea of the first Jewish ghetto and so forth, that will all be shared and discussed with the Nachum Single Network audience around the world. And as they do traditionally, the uh, Jewish Unity Initiative missions, Nachum Single Network will present a gift to the Jewish community of Venice and the surrounding cities. It's the gift of music by way of a Saturday night Malava Malka concert uh, starring Yitzhak Dadye and Daniel Ahaviel. So tune in if you want to hear the actual uh, programs and the information from Venice. No- Monday, a week from today, November 21 and November 22, Tuesday, November 22, tune into JM in the AM. And all audio and video presentations, including the Malava Malka and so forth, of the Venice trip will be available at NachumSiegel.com or on the NachumSiegel Network app. As promised, we're going to share with you some, some insights, if we could. When you, when, when you try to sum up the life of an, a great person who has accomplished so much and has gone through an incredible life, you feel small. It's hard to do it, but I'll, I'll try my best to convey to you a little bit about the life of Yafa El Yach. And I'll start off by saying 
that since the early 1980s, the Eliyach family, David Yibadel Chaimo Kim and Yafa Zichonali Bracha, and the Weingarten family, my parents and uh, myself, were neighbors in Brooklyn and uh, very close friends and would share Friday night meals once at this one's house and once at the other one's house. And so I got to know them personally and well. And uh, so I, I share with you also some of my my feel my personal feelings. Yafa Eliach was born in a little town in Lithuania. It's called Eishishuk. Her father was a, a leather tannery owner. I have to tell you also that they lived, Jewish community lived in Eishishuk for hundreds and hundreds of years. I believe she said it was 800 years in her book. So this was a solid Jewish community. Imagine, if you will, I mean, even even longer, with a longer history than, let's say, our Jewish community in New York. And when the Germans rounded up the Jews of Eishishuk, her father, Moshe, escaped by jumping out the window of the synagogue. He took his wife, Tzipporah, his daughter Yaffa, and an older brother, Yitzchak, and a baby brother, Chaim, into hiding. Within the next two days, almost all the town's Jews were shot and killed. And the Elias went from hiding place to hiding place. First, they were in a loft in a, in a ghetto. They were hidden. And her baby brother was suffocated by others who were in that loft because he was crying and they clamped their hands over his face so that the Germans shouldn't hear the crying and he was he died. And then for several years, she was in a pit. She and her family and another family were in a pit under a pigsty on a farm owned by Christians. Can you imagine being, I think she was there for two years or more, living literally in a pit under a pigsty. She learned Hebrew and Yiddish and Polish there. She lived there. That was her life. I can't imagine growing up, a child watching your brother get killed, living in in a pit, not knowing how long you're going to survive. In fact, somewhat ironic or interesting that a neighbor of ours in Brooklyn, a neighbor of the Eliachs, was also a child in that same pit. Rabbi Yisr Fisher, who shared the pit, his family and their family also were there. It's pretty amazing how they end up being neighbors in Brooklyn as well. And somehow, through all this, they survived and they returned to Eishishak. And when they returned to Eishishak, her mother and her brother Chaim were shot by the Polish anti-Semites. And she wrote about that. She, she was there and she was surrounded by death. Caused a huge controversy, not going to get into it now, but the, Pol- the Polish didn't like the fact that people were saying that when Jews came back after the war, the anti-Semitism was still rife. I don't know why they think that is so shocking. It, of course it was. Yafel Yach went on to Israel, and she met and married David Elyach, who was an educator par excellence, a man of amazing greatness, his own greatness, in addition to his wife being of such stature. And they came to America where David Elyach was the principal of the Yeshiva Flappish High School. And I must say that he made it into an amazing educational institution, world-renowned, continues today still under the influence of what he established. He still goes at the age of, I believe, 93. He still goes in several times a week to be a mentor to younger uh, teachers and lecturers. So David and Yaffa lived in New York. She taught at Brooklyn College, and she dedicated her life, Yaffa Elyach did, to the memory of the Holocaust, but different, different than what we usually see. Her mission was to document the victims' lives, not just their death, and I've, I heard her explain this so many times. It pained her that most Holocaust memorials focused on dead Jews, on death camps, and not on what it was that the Nazis destroyed, the beauty of Jewish life in Europe before the Holocaust. That's what we should be remembering. That's what you would always say. That's what we should be remembering. We don't want to memorialize the death. We want to remember the life, the joy and the beauty of the life that was in Eastern Europe, in the shtetl. And she was appointed to be on the uh, presidential Jimmy Carter's uh, Presidential Commission on Holocaust, which was to develop the not-yet-built Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. They were This committee was supposed to 
give ideas and, and help in establishing that museum. And anyone who goes there, if you've ever been there, you cannot forget the site of this tower of pictures, the Tower of Life, where about 1,500 pictures of Jews from the town of Eishishok in different family smachot, in different community events, just daily life and so forth. That was ultimately what she wanted to accomplish, to focus and highlight the beauty of life and through the pictures that she went around the world for years to collect and put them in this tower in Washington, D.C., where millions and millions of people get to see it, she was able to fulfill her life's mission. By 2016, New York Times reports that 40 million people have visited the museum and seen this exhibit. So Yaffa's goal, Yaffa Elyach's goal of memorializing life the life of the shtetl was realized in a most beautiful way. She also had, and this I did not see anywhere, it could be that they didn't mention it because it didn't come to fruition, but she had a dream of actually recreating a shtetl. In Israel, she was, she was negotiating with different municipalities who would, uh, to allocate land somewhere in Israel for them to build a shtetl, like Lahavdala Disneyland kind of thing. You know, this future world or tomorrow world, so this was, you know, yesterday world. That fit in with her her mission of showing what shtetl life was like and how beautiful and full and rich and robust it was. Unfortunately, that particular project never came to fruition. It didn't, didn't work out, but the concept is beautiful. And maybe one day somebody will take take it up. She's very well known for her book, Hasidic Tales of the Holocaust. If you did not read Hasidic Tales of the Holocaust by Yaffa Elyach, do yourself a favor, my recommendation, and give your soul, give your neshama an uplifting journey. Give your neshama some spiritual sustenance. Get it from the library, get it on Amazon, get it anywhere. It's been translated into tens and tens of languages. It's just a bestseller, worldwide, international bestseller. Um, get your hands on it. It's in Kindle. You could get it on Kindle. Download it. Yaffa El Yach's book, uh, Hasidic Tales of the Holocaust. She wrote another book, really her magnum opus. This is something she dreamed about. About the shtetl of Eishashak. It's an 818-page book called There Once Was a World, a 900-year chronicle of the shtetl of Eishashak. There it is. It was 900 years. Published by Little Brown and Company in 1998. That was one. It was non-fiction finalist for the National Book Award. And the Hasidic, tale, Hasidic Tales of the Holocaust is the other. We're going to play a song, Mikdash Melech. It's an old Eastern European Baba of Nigan. And then we'll share with you one of the Hasidic Tales of the Holocaust before we close out. My name is Mayor Weingart, and you're tuned to The Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network.
Mikdash Melech, Yishai Rebo singing that niggin. There's a great story which we've told many times on uh, around the time of Yom HaShoah that goes with that uh, with that melody. Before we go on to the story from the Hasidic tales of the Holocaust, there's something that I want to add. Her pursuit of these photos, the ones that ended up in the uh, Tower of Life in Washington, was unbelievable. She was a relentless uh, um, collector. Whenever she would hear that there were photos of Jews from the town of Asia, she traveled around the world. She spent 15 years traveling to all 50 states, many countries, searching for photographs, diaries, letters. It says in the New York Times um, obituary, in Israel she knocked on 42 doors of an apartment building to track down one family and unearthed a cache of material buried in cans under a palm tree. In Australia, she told a radio station that she was searching for a family known as, quote, the mice, and was fortunate to get a tip from a caller. She hired a security guard to help gather material in a former synagogue in a rough section of Detroit. And in several cases, she resorted to a kind of bribery, medication, color television, jogging suits, to persuade families to part with precious photographs temporarily so that she could reproduce them. She spent more than six hundred thousand dollars of her own money and loans until uh, the project was supported later by the Guggenheim Fellowship, ultimately collecting 6,000 photos. This is from Hasidic Tales of the Holocaust by Yafa Elyach, Zichronali Vracha. It's one of the stories. It's called Good Morning, Herr Muller. Near the city of Danzig lived a well-to-do Hasidic rabbi, scion of a prominent Hasidic dynasty, dressed in a tailored black suit, wearing a top hat, and carrying a silver walking cane. The rabbi would take his daily morning stroll, accompanied by his tall, handsome son-in-law. During his morning walk, it was the rabbi's custom to greet every man, woman, and child whom he met on his way with a warm smile and a cordial good morning. Over the years, the rabbi became acquainted with many of his fellow townspeople and would always greet them by their proper title and name. Near the outskirts of the town in the fields, he would exchange greetings with Herr Müller, a Polish Volksdeutscher, an ethnic German who lived in Poland. Good morning, Herr Müller, the rabbi would hasten to greet the man who worked in the fields. Good morning, Herr Rabiner, would come the response with a good-natured smile. Then... Then the war broke out. The rabbi stroll stopped abruptly. Herr Müller donned an SS uniform and disappeared from the fields. The fate of the rabbi was like that of much of the rest of Polish Jewry. He lost his family in the death camp of Treblinka, and after great suffering, he was deported to Auschwitz. One day, during a selectia, selection at Auschwitz, the rabbi stood on line with hundreds of other Jews waiting the moment when their fate would be decided for life or death. Dressed in a striped camp uniform, head and beard shaven and eyes feverish from starvation and disease, the rabbi looked like a walking skeleton. Right, left, 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 right. The voice in the distance grew nearer. Suddenly, the rabbi had a great urge to see the face of the man with the snow-white gloves and small baton and steely voice who played God and decided who should live and who should die. He lifted his eyes and heard his own voice speaking. Good morning, Herr Müller. Good morning, Herr Rabiner, responded a human voice beneath the SS cap, adorned with skull and bones. What are you doing here? A faint smile appeared on the rabbi's lips. The baton moved to the right, to life. The following day, the rabbi was transferred to a safer camp. The rabbi now in his 80s told me, writes Yafa Elyach in his gentle voice, <clears throat> this is the power of a good morning greeting. A man must always greet his fellow man. That's just one of the many amazing stories in Hasidic tales of the Holocaust, which I so recommend um, that you get or uh, read one way or the other. You should definitely get your hands on it. We'll end off today's show with a tribute to another Jewish songwriter and poet. This one is Bob Dylan. He's still alive, and believe it or not, he got the uh, Nobel Prize for Literature. We'll play uh, Naomi Shemer's 
version of Blowing in the Wind. She translated the song sort of beautifully into Hebrew, as only she could do. And she sings it on her uh, album, El Borotamayim. And we will get to that right after we say thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for all your Facebook likes and comments. Thanks to the staff of the Nachum Siegel Network and my very special thanks, as always, to Nachum Siegel. Coming up on the Nachum Siegel Network, encore presentations of Eternal Flame with Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson, followed by Headlines with David Lichtenstein, and then the great Monday Music Marathon. I will, Amir Tashem, be filling in for Nachum uh, over at JM and AM on Friday. Hope to uh, see you then. Don't forget to stay tuned to the Nachum Siegel Network over the weekend and the beginning of next week for the uh, great broadcasting from Venice. Until then, this is Mayor Weingarten reminding you the nice guys do not finish last. They're just running in a different race. Oh